We are continuing this morning with our study of the servant songs that are found in the book of Isaiah. There are four of them, and they all speak in quite a bit of detail about the prophesied Messiah, what he would accomplish when he came. The word Advent, which uh, most of you probably know, is Latin for the word for, for, for meaning arrival. So this month we are thinking about the arrival of that Messiah, this prophesied servant who was spoken about by Isaiah. They are called servant songs because there the Messiah is spoken of as the servant of God in each one of them. And to this point, we've covered two of those songs. The first one is in Isaiah 42. And that song, we are exhorted to behold the servant of God. The idea of beholding is to look carefully at, to analyze, to think clearly about, what, about, about who he is. We are told that he was chosen by God the Father for the work that he was given. We are told that the Father had great delight in the Son. We are also told that he would be especially anointed by the Spirit of God for the work that was given to him as the servant. And that ministry was to bring gospel justice to the nations of the world, which is something that shows up in the subsequent Psalms as well. One of the highlights of that first song is that the servant would give special attention to ministering to people who were weak and disheartened. He would also open the eyes of those who were spiritually blind. He would bring prisoners out of places of deep darkness. And it also mentions in that first song that the servant would be appointed by God the Father as a covenant to the people. So there would be a binding agreement, and there is an, a binding agreement between God the Father and God the Son that would result in salvation for sinners all over the world. Now that theme is elaborated on in the second song, which is in Isaiah 49. That song actually features a remarkable conversation between God the Father and God the Son that would have taken place in eternity past. This chapter contains a number of quotes from the Father as well as quotes from the servant, God the Son. And that covenant agreement again comes into play. The covenant agreement a called for the servant to be born of a woman so that he could take on human flesh. That agreement called for the servant to be often rejected by men but he would still fulfill the Father's purpose. That covenant agreement called for the servant's work to accomplish salvation, not only for Israel, but for people from all nations. All the things that we just spoke of from both of those first and second songs were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and through his ministry. Well, as we look at that third song this morning, we're going to see a number of those earlier themes continue to be elaborated on, especially the fact that the servant would be often rejected by men. Now, there's two main things that we're looking at in this song, the one in, in, in chapter 50, <clears throat> going into chapter 51 as well. First, we are given more insight into the remarkable relationship between the servant of God and the Lord God, between God the Father, God the Son. More insight there. And then secondly, the servant of God then speaks to those who will follow him as his servant, which is believers. So, in our first main point, we see this. The servant of God's exemplary relationship with the Lord God. So, let me read for you Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. 
The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Well, as in the second song, which was Isaiah 49, the servant of God here really begins speaking without being introduced. He uses the word servant in verse 10, which we'll look at in the second section. And so that makes this whole soliloquy kind of tied into, so we understand that it's coming from this servant, even though he doesn't call himself a servant until verse 10. Now, he makes a number of assertions about about himself in these opening verses. And we see that he introduces each of these assertions by speaking of the Lord God. You can see that title in verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9. The word for Lord used here is the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. The word God, which is in all capital letters, probably in your, in your version as well, is the word Yahweh, Jehovah. It speaks of God as the great I am, the sovereign, eternal God. It also speaks of God as the one who makes covenant with his people, which, as I mentioned, is a key theme through these servant songs. Well, this is the Lord God whom the servant of God serves. It's the Lord God who has called him and enables him to accomplish all that was ordained from eternity. Again, much of what we've seen in these first two songs. Well, the first thing that the servant of the Lord asserts about himself is this on your outline. The servant of God is the ultimate example of what a disciple should be. The servant of God is, an ultimate, is the ultimate example of what a disciple should be. He says in uh, verse 4, opens with, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Well, the word disciple speaks of a learner or a scholar. In fact, it might be better translated as the learned. So the servant of God is telling us that he's an exemplary learner. He says that the Lord awakens him morning by morning. He awakens his ear to listen to the truth as a disciple. He is one who has learned all, therefore, all that was necessary for him to fulfill what he's been called to do. He has been thoroughly equipped for the task that he's been given as the servant. And the submission of the servant of God to God the Father is a clear theme throughout the section. But, of course, that's the whole point of the title, servant of God. It's the relationship between them. God the Father called God the Son to be the servant, to be the one who would accomplish the task of providing salvation for his people. And God the Son willingly responded to this call. 
In John chapter 5, we see several examples of how Jesus Christ spoke of this relationship that he had with the Father. Let me just read a few verses here. This is John 5, 19 to 23. It says, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the Son also gives life to those whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we see the servant here, Jesus Christ, giving the Father credit for all of the works that Christ accomplished, that Christ did. He gives him credit for the life that he lives and the life that he gives. He also gives him credit for the judgment that he is responsible for. So this is evidence of the fact that the servant of God really is the ultimate example of what a disciple should be. He lives and ministers in submission to the Lord God. Now we also see in verse 4, this next point, the servant of God takes opportunity to encourage others with the things that he's been taught, to encourage others with the things he's been taught. It says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. So the servant of God is not only a scholar, so to speak, not only one who makes sure that he knows and understands everything, fully understands and comprehends the truth. He also takes the opportunity to share this truth with others. This is speaking of really of Christ's prophetic ministry. As part of his ministry as the anointed one, as Christ, he's anointed to be our great prophet. The prophet is the one who speaks truth of God. We all need Christ as our prophet. We need him as our prophet because every one of us are naturally ignorant of the truth. By nature, we are ignorant. We are so vulnerable to being deceived. We are so vulnerable to living by lies. But praise God, he leads his people into what is true. He's our great prophet. But, it, but Christ is just, just, just doesn't simply share knowledge. It says that he's able to sustain the weary one with a word. You ever feel like you're the weary one? I think that happens a lot. I feel that way many times. Not just physically tired, even though that happens, but frustrated, discouraged, maybe disheartened by, by things. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can make you feel weary. Well, our Lord knows how to speak a timely word that will refresh, strengthen, and encourage. How often have you had a scripture come to mind or maybe something somebody shares with you that was just what you needed to hear at a particular time. That's what the servant of God does for us. He has a word to encourage and help the weary one. 
A third thing that the servant of God tells us about himself is this. The servant of God is obedient to the Lord even to the point of painful humiliation. Even to the point of painful humiliation. Verse 5 and 6, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This aspect of, of, the, of the servant's ministry was hinted at in the first song back in Isaiah 42 verse 4. There it says he would not be disheartened or crushed. Well, the assumption is that there would be things that he would deal with that would cause him, that might cause him to be disheartened or crushed. It was a little more clear in the second song. In Isaiah 49, it says there would be times that his ministry would be rejected to the point that he would feel like he was toiling in vain. And then later in that chapter, God the Father speaks of the servant and calls him the despised one, the one abhorred by his nation. And then here in chapter 50, the servant speaks of his commitment to be obedient to the fall that the father required of him. He would not be disobedient in anything necessary for his task. He was fully submissive, not just in his actions, but in his heart attitude. And verse 6 makes it very clear what that submission would involve. First, it says that he would give his back to those who would strike him. So we now get some insight into the kind of suffering that the servant of God would endure. It's easy here to see a reference to the scourging that he had to endure at the hand of the Romans. You know, the, the scourge was a, a whip, basically, of, uh, of multiple uh, strands. And within those strands, there would be pieces of glass and pottery, and that's what they would be whipped with. It was a very cruel kind of torture and so painful that it was not uncommon for people to die just simply from being scourged. Well, I think that's, that's alluded to here, 700 years before it ever happened. So out of obedience to the Lord God, the servant endured this punishment. It's also interesting to note here that Jesus was not trying to get away. He says, I gave my back. I gave my back to those who would strike me. In other words, the servant of God was the one in control. He gave himself to endure this punishment. The second thing he mentions here is that he gave his cheeks to those who would pluck out the beard. Now, we don't have a record of this happening to Jesus. But the idea here is this is an example, again, of extreme humiliation. To pluck out the hair of the beard was to show great contempt for the person. And then third, Jesus' obedience was characterized by not covering up his face from the humiliation he would endure by people spitting in his face. That is a truly degrading thing for someone to have to endure. Hopefully you've not had to deal with that yourself, but your Savior did. Men spat in Jesus' face as part of the suffering that he endured leading up to his crucifixion. And then, of course, at his crucifixion, he was cruelly mocked while he suffered publicly. So as the servant who fully submitted himself to the will of God in order to purchase our salvation, he willingly embraced humiliation of the worst kind. So when we're beholding 
the servant of God, like the first servant song told us to do. When we're beholding the servant of God, this is part of what we need to consider, his humiliation that he endured on our behalf, <clears throat> reminding us again of what a glorious Savior we have. The final assertion the servant makes is this about himself, is that the servant of God courageously endures the, temp- the contempt, endures the contempt of others, knowing that the Lord God will uphold him. Look again at verse 7, 8, and 9. It says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. So in the face of extreme humiliation, the servant is confident that the Lord God who is the one who would enable him to endure all that was required of him. And with the help of the Lord God, it says Jesus would set his face like flint. It's the idea of, of uh, going forward, making yourself like a hard rock, so to speak, and going forward that you're not going to sway to the right or to the left, but, you know, actual determ- clear determination. Jesus is described this way in Luke 9:51. by the way. It says, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Obviously, he knew full well what was going to take place in Jerusalem. He spoke to his disciples about it multiple times. And he set his face like flint, just like it's prophesied here, that he would go and he would endure all that was there for him. He was committed to drink that cup of suffering all the way to the dregs. And we read here that even though Jesus was humiliated, he was not disgraced. Usually we put those two things together. If somebody's humiliated, we think of them being disgraced. Jesus said that, but we see here that's not what happened to the servant. With all the shameful and painful things that Jesus endured, he is not remembered in a disgraceful way. Even people who are not Christians think of Jesus as being someone to be admired for all that he endured. So disgrace did not go apart, go along with the humiliation. But more than that, we see that the Lord God vindicated him. He was pronounced, he pronounced the servant to be innocent, to stand just, to stand righteous. Yes, there were those who condemned Jesus for the things he said. They condemned him for the things that that he did that they didn't like. He was given a death sentence as punishment. But a challenge here is given for those who would condemn him to all stand together against him with their accusations. And their accusations, of course, are based on hateful lies. So their accusations are going to be shown for what they really are. They will not be successful. It says they in themselves will wear out like a garment is eaten away by moths. In fact, the Lord God has justified his servant. The Son of God is perfectly righteous in every way. Hateful lies do not change that. He is perfectly righteous. Well, at this point, the servant song changes focus. Verses 4 through 9 are focused on the servant himself and the things that he would endure as part of his ministry of bringing gospel justice or bringing salvation to sinners. Beginning in verse 10 in chapter 50 through verse 8 of chapter 51, the focus is on those who believe in and obey 
the servant, on those whom the servant has come to save. Now, first, let's notice a couple of things here before we get to that part. There is so much we can learn from the example of the servant that we just looked at. We, too, are called to be exemplary disciples. Every believer is called to be that way. We, too, could learn from this example of being, of, of awake, being awakened in the morning to listen to the Lord's voice in his word. The servants of the servant are called to share with others what the Lord has taught them. We want to be a help to other people. We especially want to be sensitive to those who are disheartened and cast down. And our hope is that the Lord God would use our words to sustain weary ones that we rub shoulders with. The servants of the, of the Lord are to be obedient to the Lord. We are his disciples. And just like our Lord, we are called to be obedient even if it brings great humiliation. We are to be obedient even if it means we have to endure physical suffering as a result. And we can live our lives then in faith that the Lord God will vindicate us against all those who contend against us. Now, there's no way that we can reach the same level of perfection that Lord Jesus Christ reached as he lived this way, as the exemplary disciple. But by his grace, we are called to serve him and learn from his example. One of the next verses, our Savior speaks more directly than to us. So second main point is this. The servants of God's servant must actively trust in the Lord and listen well to what he says, especially when living in a dark time. Look at verses 10 and 11. Who is among you, so notice now the pronoun changes, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment." So the servant begins his exhortations to his servants first by making this point. To be a true servant of the servant of God requires a response of faith and obedience. Trusting one's own wisdom leads to dire consequences. So those who rightly respond to the servant of God are described as those who fear the Lord. They have a reverential awe of God. That's, so it speaks of their respect, of their awe, their worship of him. The one who fears the Lord is also described as one who obeys the voice of the servant. It is here that Isaiah makes it clear, like I said, that he's been, all that he's been speaking to this point is reference to the servant. Because there he says, talks about obeying the voice of his servant, and, he's, and the servant is speaking of himself at that point. And if you remember, he's telling us to listen to the voice, to obey the voice of the servant. That's how the whole thing started, with the, with the servant listening to the voice of his father. So it's the same, it's the same kind of thing that, that he's calling for us to be hearers of the word, as not just hearers, but also doers as well. And then we see the circumstances in which these servants of the servant find themselves. He says they're in a time of darkness. There's no light around them. So the spiritual darkness is something that is very real. They could not tell which way to go simply by looking at the circumstances around them. So they must fear the Lord and heed his voice. They must trust in the name of the Lord and rely on him. So if you're to be a servant of God, 
This is what we must do. We must hear the truth, recognize our need, which is our own sin, and we must believe that God's servant, who is Jesus Christ, is the one that we must put our faith in. When we live in a time of darkness, that means that we're going to be going against the flow of what's happening around us. But we must not be but we must be people who trust the word of God and not the word of the culture. But there's another option here. He's calling people to trust in him. But the but the other option is this. It's in verse 11. It says many will kindle their own fire trying to make their own light. They are following the in other words the impulses of their own heart and their own desires. That's what they're doing. Well, our culture praises people who do that. Whole movies have been made about that, encouraging all of us to live that way. Servant of God says, if you do that, you're in big trouble. That is not the way to do it, to make your own light, to follow what your heart says you should do. Because in reality, to walk in the light of your own ideas is to walk in darkness. Servant of God says this, this is what you have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So when people who reject the Lord in favor of their own faulty ideas and desires and impulses, the Lord will use these firebrands, he calls them, as evidence against them. To reject the voice of the Lord is to be under the condemnation of God. And that's the place, as the servant here says, that's the place of eternal torment so to be a servant of god be a servant of god's servant say it that way means that we must put our trust in his word and not in our own heart or our own ideas then in the first eight verses of isaiah 51 the servant gives a number of reasons for why it's wise to hear and respond to his voice so let me read verses one to eight listen to me you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man. Do not be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation is to all generations. So we see here that the servant of God gives these good, good reasons on why his servant should listen to what he says and to obey. And this is really gracious of God when you think about this. He doesn't just say, I'm the Lord, obey me. He does say that. 
but he gives reasons along with it. That's very gracious. Don't just, he doesn't just say obey me. Here's some reasons to consider this. First, listen, he says. The same God who made a great nation out of an idolatrous and barren couple will comfort his people in dark times and bring forth good fruit. We see this in verses 1, 2, and 3. The servant begins by saying, listen to me. In other words, hear my voice and obey. And then note how the servant characterizes the people he's talking to. They are people who pursue righteousness. They are people who seek the Lord. So God has given them a heart to do what is right. They have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. At the same time, each one of them would fully realize and admit they fall short of that righteousness that they're pursuing. So these people who look to the Lord then as the only source of true righteousness, because the two things go together. He talks about, I lost my place. You pursue righteousness and you seek the Lord, realizing the righteousness is not good enough that we can come up with. So we're in the process, we're seeking the Lord as well. I mean, those two things go together. Then the Lord looks to encourage these disciples and calls them to remember their history. He says, he speaks of Abraham and Sarah. They were the rock or the quarry from which they were dug. Now there seems to be a reference here to the fact that Abraham was a sinful man. The word for quarry can be translated as the hole of a pit. Abraham did not begin as a godly man. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. But the Lord called him out of that hole of the pit. And the Lord saved him. And the Lord granted him righteousness that he could never earn by his own merit. He was righteous by faith. It says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he received righteousness not because he was a good person, but because he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But he didn't start out that way. The Lord is also pointing out, though, that in the beginning of the children of Israel, there was just Abraham and Sarah, a couple who were not even physically able to have children. But God blessed Abraham and multiplied children from him. In a similar way, then, the believers of Zion are struggling because they're living in a time of darkness, uncertainty. When Isaiah wrote this, by the way, uh, the king was Manasseh, who was a wicked king. He repented near the end of his life, but he was a truly wicked man. They've also been told in Isaiah's day that they would be destroyed and taken into exile by the Babylonians. But out of their waste places, out of their wilderness, God will make them like an Eden. He will turn their desert into the garden of God. And as a result, there's going to be joy and gladness, thanksgiving and music. So he's speaking of times, I think, in which the church of Jesus Christ will flourish in the earth. And even though they don't see evidence of it in their time, they should be encouraged by this. God is what God is going to do these things because he has promised to do these things. The Lord gave Abraham the same kind of vision. He told Abraham before he had any kids that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. He didn't see any evidence of that. But he gave him that promise. And, he's, and so believers should not forget God's promises, especially when we find ourselves living in times of darkness. So these are some good reasons for the, 
disciples of the servant of God to continue to obey his voice and to believe what he says. He gives a second reason to hear his voice. He says this. Now he says, pay attention. God will cause his truth to be a light to all nations, resulting in an eternal salvation characterized by righteousness. We find this in verses 4, 5, and 6. The servant begins, begins once again by saying, this time, pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. So the reason they're to pay close attention to him is because the law of God comes forth from him. This is the very expression of what the will of God is, and it shows men what they should believe and how they should live and how they should act. So it would be foolish not to pay attention and to hear what he has to say. It's foolish to think we can trust our own wisdom. The servant then describes his law, this law as him setting forth his justice in the, as a light to the nations. And we make sure again, like we've seen in all the other ones so far, that this is not just for the nation of Israel. Thank the Lord, it's for the nations of the world. Now his law is an expression of his righteousness. It speaks of the fact that salvation has gone forth from him. So in the fullest sense here, he's speaking of the gospel, the gospel that is the hope for every nation. It's helpful to note here that God's justice and his salvation go hand in hand. If you remember from the first servant song, the Lord God said that his servant would bring forth justice to the nations. That promise was repeated multiple times. It's going to happen. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations of the world. Well, here the connection between justice and salvation is affirmed. The greatest expression of God's wrath and judgment was seen when Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. In his great humiliation, he was enduring the condemnation that sinners like us deserve. But he was not a sinner. He did not deserve that judgment. Instead, Christ suffered the wrath of God on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will receive the salvation he provides. So we praise God here that judgment and salvation go hand in hand. That is the hope of every sinner in every nation in every time in history. Servant also makes it clear in verse 6 that this is an eternal salvation. He speaks of the earth, he speaks of the sky as being temporary like smoke. So those who are trusting in the things of the earth for their salvation are going to be terribly disappointed because it's not going to last. But in contrast, the servant of God says, my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not wane. I mean, just a great promise here. It's a promise It's really the promise that we celebrate in this Advent season. The arrival of the servant of God has made these things a reality. So the second reason for the disciples to pay attention to his voice is because he speaks the truth. It's truth that will result in eternal salvation for all people who hear, for people all over the world. So he says, pay attention. That's worth paying attention to. The servant then gives a third and final reason to hear his voice. He says again, listen, the people of God have an eternal righteousness and can be courageous in the face of man's momentary ridicule. This is verses 7 and 8. I'll read those again for you. For the Lord God, oh, listen to me, 
you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man. Do not be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So for the third time, the servant says, listen to me. There are so many other voices. There are so many other things that are looking to get our attention. And a lot of times they do a really good job at getting us to notice them. But our Lord says that we must be sure that we are listening to him. And then to further emphasize his point, the Lord reminds them uh, of who they are. They are people who know. You know what true righteousness is. You're not deceived by what is trendy in the culture. God's people have embraced his law in their heart and as their rule of life. That is who the servants of God's servant are. That's how they're described here. So when someone who's not a believer reviles the very fact of the gospel that's there, like how could that be true? When people act like it's naive for us to believe that the scripture truly is the word of God, he's telling us here, don't be dismayed. Don't be dismayed by that. You're the servants of the Lord. You belong to him. Now, Jesus, of course, is our example here. He was thoroughly humiliated. In fact, he embraced humiliation, as we noticed. But because he was honoring the Lord, because he was standing firm for what was true, he knew he would not be disgraced. He had no reason to be ashamed. Therefore, he could be courageous, and so can we. There's a quote on your outline by Matthew Henry. He says, The cause we suffer for cannot be run down. The falsehood of their reproaches will be detected, but truth shall triumph. The enemies of the servant of God are described as people who are like a garment eaten up by a moth. In other words, they and their causes are temporary. The best that can be said about them is they are trendy, but they are shallow and oftentimes, almost always, founded on what is not true. It's so easy to be afraid of what men might do or what they might say about us, but instead we should listen to the voice of our God, of God's servant, and follow him. His truth will triumph. His righteousness is forever. His salvation extends to all generations. So may we live as servants of the servant of God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for prophecies like this that were given a good 700 years before Jesus Christ ever came. It's these kind of prophecies that just give us even more reason to celebrate there in this Advent season. Thank you so much for the arrival of the promised one that we are able to sing about and read scriptures about and believe in ourselves. Help us to grow in our faith. Lord, help us. In many ways, we're living in a time where there is lots of spiritual darkness, lots of it. And it is easy to be dismayed. It's easy to feel frustrated. I don't... I think most of us probably share the same thing. I do not like being humiliated. I do not crave that. Our Savior embraced it. Lord, help us to realize that there's going to be times that we're going to be humiliated, and it's because of our faith. 
It's because we are standing firm for you as best we know how. Lord, grant us the strength to stand firm, even when things in the culture are pushing, pushing, pushing for us not to do that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm in darkness. I realize that I do not measure up to the things that you require of a person. I'm not really righteous. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, the one who suffered in such humiliating ways to pay for my salvation. I want to receive receive him as my Savior, and I submit to him to be his servant, to live with him as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name.